Amen. I just got to share a little story here with you regarding uh, winter weather. Uh, you know, I had, I had kind of grown up and lived on the West Coast. So you can imagine when I graduated from Bible college, my family moved to the States. And then we immigrated up to um, Canada. Well, actually, I'm a Canadian because I was born in Vancouver. But we, we came, I came back up to Canada, and my calling was to go to serve in Fort McMurray. Now, and we moved in the winter times. So you have to understand, I've been living on the coast. I was clueless. I mean, literally clueless. No block heater, no snow tires, no winter clothes. And I can still remember one of the first events as a youth pastor. It was, it was doing what we're seeing today here. And I thought, oh, that's going to shut everything down, right? Because when you're living in Seattle, you get this kind of weather. That's the end of everything. Everything shuts down. And so I, I was phoning around thinking I was going to cancel the event. And they said, listen, pastor, if you did that every time it did this, we wouldn't have any events. So I learned really quickly that Albertans are not... Uh, uh, focused on, I mean, we are focused on the weather, but we're not deterred by the weather, and it's so glad to see you here tonight in spite of this weather. So let's, uh, I'm going to have you stand tonight, and we're going to pray, and I'm just believing tonight. We had such great service this morning, and we had such a wonderful prayer time with our men in our early prayer time, and we're believing tonight that this might be a defining moment for some of you. Amen. And literally, we're praying that, you know, that you could look back to this day and say, this is the day God set me free. And so I'm trusting for that kind of a miracle for you tonight. And many are have been praying for that for you as well. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you tonight that you are an amazingly gracious God. We thank you tonight that you're the one who hears the cry of our heart, the longings of our soul. And Lord, we know that we want to relate to you. There's a desire in our hearts to know you, the true and the living God, to be on this path that leads to true blessedness, true happiness in our lives. And it brings about an amazing freedom. So Lord, I pray that we will hear your voice tonight. We will respond to you and we will experience your power liberating us, Lord, from the things that have ensnared us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to take you back to a thousand years before the birth of Christ. One of the most familiar biblical stories, uh, just and one of the more familiar Bible characters. A number of years ago when I was doing my research, when I was uh, in Bible college, I researched the life of King David. And I began to tie together the Psalms with some of the events in his life and began to develop a portrait of David's heart and life. And how many know David is an amazing person? But David, you know, when, when he started out his journey, even his father did not see him as a leader. How many recognize that? Samuel came along. He was going to anoint one of uh, Jesse's sons as king of Israel. Jesse had eight boys. Can you imagine? And he only had seven, <coughs> excuse me, seven of them line up to be looked at by the prophet. David was left taking care of the sheep. He's on the back side of the desert. And here's uh, the Samuel the prophet. He looks at the first guy and says, surely this has got to be the guy. And God speaks to him and says, don't look on outward appearances. You see outside. I see the heart. This is not the guy. And so Samuel kind of goes through all seven guys and he says to Jesse, don't you have any other sons here? I mean, God spoke to me. It's going to be one of your sons. And the father finally said, oh yeah, with the rent of the litter, he's out there taking sheep. He says, go get him, bring him in. And they anointed David king. Now, David was probably around 7, 16, 17 years old. And when God promises us something, many times there's a developmental aspect to it. A lot of times we just think, okay, God's telling me he's going to do this in my life. And then there's this huge delay. And we get all frustrated. We think God's kind of let us down. But the reality is that God has a developmental plan in our lives. How many know if God's going to ask you to do something significant, He's got to develop you to allow you to, to grow into that realm where you can handle that responsibility. So for the next 13 years, David runs from King Saul. There's all kinds of things happening in his life. Eventually, Saul is killed in battle. David becomes the king, not over all of the nation, but only over the two southern tribes. And he has another seven-year delay. So David now, from the time he was anointed king to the time he became the king over the entire nation is 20 years. And once that happens, his life really turns around. It's phenomenal. David's an amazing king. He consolidates the kingdom. It's the largest kingdom that Israel had ever experienced. I mean, it was amazing what was going on. But how many know 
And this is something we don't always understand. When things going good in our lives, things can really turn around in a negative way. And what happens when we're on the top of the pile, really to be a successful person, there's a level of danger there. You know, we always think that struggle is bad. We always think that difficulty is bad. But let me tell you, when life is good, we can be more susceptible to succumbing to temptation than we were when it was difficult and there was a struggle. And that certainly was true with David. It says that in the time when the kings went out to war, in the springtime, there was conflict. David, rather than going, stayed home. And so David was literally not picking up his responsibilities I mean, he had that luxury where he could just delegate it off. He sent his armies out, and he stayed home. But how many know, when you're not in God's purposes, all of a sudden you're more susceptible to growing bored and restless. You're looking for something. If David had been doing what he should have been doing, this probably wouldn't have happened. But now he's, you know, overseeing his nation. And it's interesting how houses are built in the ancient Near East. And it's also the same way they build them in India. I've been there. Most There's a lot of living that goes on on the rooftop of a house. We don't relate to that because we're in a very cold climate. Who's going to be outside tonight, right? We're saying, I want shelter, right? And I want heat. But in those climates, it's a lot warmer, and a lot of living happens up up on the roof. And I, I notice that when I go to India, they're upstairs. They're, they go up, there's the stairs going to the side of the house. They're up there. They're doing different things. And David was on his palace roof. And if you go to Jerusalem, you'll notice that the high point in Jerusalem was the temple area. And then as you come down a little bit, that's Mount Zion. Then you come down a little bit, and that's where the palace of the king was. And then when you see the next level, down below is the city of David, where the people lived. And so David had what I call a bird's eye view of everybody in town. He could stand up on his palace, look over the city, and see what was going on in different people's lives. He could see what was happening on the rooftops. And here this woman was bathing, and David decided to take her. And how many know it's really difficult for someone who is in a role of subservience to an absolute autocrat, what could she say? And David took her, and the Bible says, and it makes it very clear that now she becomes pregnant, and this is David's child. And she sends a message to him and says, you know what? I'm pregnant with your child. And David now feels a measure of responsibility, but what he tries to do is not address the sin issue at all. And so his her husband, who's one of his loyal soldiers, is out fighting. And so David calls him back in a pretense to find out what in the world's going on in the conflict, right? So he comes back home, and David's hoping that he'll go home, you know, he'll have a relationship with his wife, and never find out that the child that she's carrying is not his, But that's not what this gentleman does because he's a person of integrity. He recognizes that his fellow soldiers are out there fighting. And he says, how can I go home and enjoy the good life while all these guys are sticking their necks out? And he decides not to do that. And David now is a little befuddled to what to do next. He tries to, you know, get him drunk and he doesn't, he doesn't follow through. So finally David comes up with this elaborate scheme, sending him back to the front, tells the commander, send him into the most dangerous part of the battle. And with the hope in David's mind that he'll be killed in battle and that'll end the problem. How many know this is kind of devious? How many think this is quite devious? And it's amazing what happens when you and I get into a sin motif and we're trying to get away with something. We really become shrewd and we try to justify what we're doing. David's doing all kinds of stuff not to address the sin issue in his life. But you know what? God knows what's going on. How many know God knows what's going on? And so David thinks he's getting away with it. The plan works flawlessly. His, her husband is killed in battle. David gets the report back. He says, well, you know what it's like. You know, you're in a war. There's going to be casualties. How many think that's kind of a cavalier attitude? You know, real casual about it. You know, no big thing. But God is watching. We have to remember something. It was God who called David to this responsibility. It was God who had anointed him to become king. And now David is abusing his responsibility. And so what happens next? Well, we start seeing that the sweet communion with God has now been silenced. You know, David was an amazing songwriter. The song of the Lord was stilled in his soul. As a matter of fact, David was now haunted. He was nagged within his soul at the affairs of the state. But really what was going on, there was an underlying problem. And by night, there were dreaded seasons insomnia, inertia, loss of appetite were now plaguing his life. As a matter of fact, I would suggest this, and I'm going to make a preface remark. 
I think David was battling with a measure of depression. Now, not all depression, listen to me, is a result of sin. That's not true. Sometimes people battle depression for other reasons. But I'm going to tell you something. There are times, because we have not addressed things in our soul, it's affecting us in a negative way. And it really is weighing heavily on our heart. And our culture doesn't understand this, by the way. We don't even address sin issues, so how can we even identify that maybe there's a problem here? And so David now is weighed down with this thing, and this goes on for a long time. I mean, most scholars believe that this probably went on for about a year. And David eventually writes one of his psalms, Psalm 32, after he addresses the sin issue in his life, and this is what David writes. He said, blessed. Now notice the word blessed. I equate that word with happy. And tonight I want to talk about how you and I can actually get on God's path towards happiness. But it's a path unlike what the society is teaching us. A lot of people are pursuing happiness, but they're on the wrong path to find it. Here is the right path to find it. David says, happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one, or happy is the one whose sin, the Lord, does not count against him, them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Isn't it amazing when you learn how to tell the truth all the time? Do you know what's beautiful about it? You never have to worry about what you're saying. Because if you're telling lies, you've got to keep thinking, who did I tell that to? And I've got to keep the story straight. It's a very difficult charade that we play. But you know when you're telling the truth, speaking the truth, it's a freed life. You can say it, and you don't have to worry about what you're saying. It's great. When I kept silent, he said, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. In other words, I was not addressing what was wrong in my life. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. God was putting pressure on David to deal with what was wrong inside of his soul. He said, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. He was lethargic. You know, he had no energy. You know, he was weighed down. He says, then I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave not just the sin, but the guilt of my sin. You know, that is a big problem. A lot of us, you know, we recognize we sin. But then afterwards, we live in condemnation. I want to talk tonight about how to move past condemnation. Anybody interested in finding out how to be happy, how to move past the guilt and the shame of our sin and experience the freedom that God wants to give to each and every one of us? I like this. So what we're finding out is David is showing us something that Jesus is going to talk about. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us these beautiful attitudes This is really the pathway to happiness. Remember last week I started with the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, blessed are you when you walk in dependency on God, when there's a humility. Do you know it takes a humble person in order to receive what God has for them? Because God resists the proud but gives favor and grace to the humble of heart. You know, here am I, God. I'm just going to, I'm going to agree with you. And then the next one he says here in Matthew chapter 5 verse 4 is, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Now I want to just stop here and say something. A lot of times we quote this verse and we're telling people who've had a loss, listen, after you've mourned you'll be comforted. And by the way that is true. But this is not what this text is teaching. There's other texts that teach that. What is this text talking about? It's mourning over our sin. And, you know, a lot of us, we have to ask the question, we really mourned over sin. You see, I think in our culture today, we, we've dismissed sin. We've, we've treated very lightly. It's like it's no big thing. You know, I, I have this kind of cavalier attitude. It's no big thing if we sin because God will forgive us. But I want to share a thought with you. Whenever we sin, it's a big thing because there's consequences, number one. Number two, it's a big thing because we're violating the love of God in our lives. And I'm going to show that to us tonight. You know, as a matter of fact, we need to find out that our, our literally, that we have mourned over our own sinfulness and we've come to rest solely in the Savior's forgiveness and goodness. That is the only place of real and enduring comfort. Now notice... King David understood this aspect of human sinfulness. And he writes another song, Psalm 36. He says, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. 
And then he says, here's the problem. There's, there's only two, there's two realms. I, you know, I think we confuse ourselves. He says, if we're, you know how you define a person who's living in wickedness? They've lost the fear of God. You know, my, this morning when I was up, I was reading in Proverbs, in my prayer for you, I prayed for you, you. I said, Lord, help me and the people in my congregation, my church family, walk in the fear of God. That's my prayer for you. That you and I will understand it, because that's the beginning of wisdom. And I covet that for us, for me and for you. And then he says this, in their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. Isn't that amazing? What what he's saying is, sin is of such a deceptive nature that it blinds us to our true state before God. We think we're okay. We don't detect it, and then we don't hate it. You know, there's some things we need to hate. It's not that we're supposed to hate other people's sins. That's what Christians normally do. We can be good Pharisees, right? We can hate other people's sins. No, he's talking about hating the thing inside of us that we recognize, you know, you know, I gotta address this stuff in my own soul. And that's really, really important. You know, a person without a relationship with God, you know, is a person who doesn't understand how profound sin really is. People can live, or we can live, even Christians live this way, as if God doesn't exist. We can become consumed with the distractions of this life, and we just are doing our own thing. There is no concern about what God thinks. So I ask the question, is sin really hated in our lives? Or rather, is it ignored, dismissed entirely as something else? Can it be that sin is actually loved, embraced, pursued, and eventually excused? That happens all the time. We're really good at justifying our behavior. You know, we can, we can nurse it, you know, in our soul. And eventually it comes to control our lives. And God wants to set us free from that. You know, Henry Nouwen once shared in an interview this profound insight. He said, I cannot continuously say no to this or no to that unless there's something ten times more attractive to choose. In other words, you know, sometimes we're struggling. A lot of people struggle with issues. I know some of us are probably struggling with things in our soul tonight, and we keep saying no, 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 and yet it just seems to be growing, and it just seems like we're fighting with this major issue in our lives. And yet he goes on to say, to say no to my lust, my greed, my needs, and the world's power takes an enormous amount of energy. The only hope, he says, is to find something so obviously real and attractive that I can devote all of my energies to say yes. What is he saying? He's saying once you say yes to something far greater, it's easy to say no to the lesser. You see what I'm getting at? And he says one such thing I can say yes to is when I come in touch with the fact that I am loved. Now let me let me just say this. When when do we? You know, most people. When I, I talk to a lot of people, they're struggling with things. You know what the big need is in a lot of our lives? I just want to be loved. I just want to be understood. I just want to be accepted. Can I tell you tonight? God loves you. God loves you above every other person on the planet. And it's an irrational love. I'm telling you. You know, I'm a parent. I can still remember the day when both of my daughters were born. What an amazing day. And you know, it's what was amazing to me is I have this irrational love for my children. You know, think about it. What did they do to earn my love? No, they kept me up at night, right? I had to change diapers, Right? How many go, that's an irrational love? Somebody keeping me up all night, and then I'm walking around and they're crying and I'm changing their diapers and, you know, they're making my life all upside down. But in reality, I still love those little girls. I mean, with all of my heart. That's an irrational love. Can I just tell you something? God has an irrational, I'm going to call it an irrational love. It's an amazing love that he could love us so much that he's willing to die for us. That's an amazing love. It's an unconditional love that God still loves you and I even when we mess up. God still loves us. He may not like what we're doing, but he loves us with an everlasting love. Man, we should be so immersed in the love of Almighty God that, it, you know what, to think that we would even want to sin against someone who loves us that much should actually create some sort of a, a, a detestation towards why would I do this to violate this kind of love in my life. He says, once I have found that in my total brokenness I'm still loved, I become free from the compulsion of doing successful things. He's just basically saying I don't have to earn God's love. You know what's amazing? How could Joseph say no to an attractive sexual proposition with his employer's wife? You know what it was? His love for God. You know what he says? 
how can I commit this great sin against God? Wow. That tells me Joseph had a relationship with God. And that's what we need, a deeper relationship with Almighty God. Now let's go back to David's story and find out how to mourn over sin and and find the comfort of being set free, not only from the sin, but also the guilt and the shame that sin brings. Remember the story, Nathan, you know, God is, when you're walking with God, it's amazing what happens. Nathan's a prophet. He comes to David. David's been wrestling for a year. There's always the right time. You know, I've, I've had to confront people in sin, and you know, you have to do a lot of praying before you go. Because if they're not ready to receive it, they're not going to receive your message. How many know that's true? I've even had people say to me, Pastor, if you'd have said this to me last night, I wouldn't have received it. But something happened last night. God prepared me for this, this meeting. They were ready for it. So we better be praying before we talk to people. We better have some tears in our eyes before we confront people. But listen, Nathan came. And Nathan tells an amazing story. He said, you know, it was an extremely wealthy man. He had all kinds of sheep. In the ancient, Mid- 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 uh, ancient Near Eastern culture, and even today in the Asian culture, there's a law of hospitality. A person comes to his home. He's going to feed him. And he has a servant. His servant has only one little lamb. And it's like a family pet. Everybody in the family loves this little lamb. He's only got the one little lamb. But the rich man, instead of taking of his abundant herd, he takes his servant's little lamb and slays it. David becomes so indignant by this sense of moral outrage and injustice that he's so angry with this person that did this thing. And Nathan immediately says, David, you're that man. You're the man that God blessed with all of this. God gave you so much, and then you went and did that. I want you to know that none of us are beyond God. David was not beyond God. You know, David could have, David could have killed Nathan, Nathan at that moment. He was an absolute monarch. But I want you to notice David's response. At that moment, the Spirit of God just struck him. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You know, David was reminded, who was I that God should raise me up to be the king? And look what I have done. I have violated my covenant responsibility before God. Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. How many love what Nathan says? The moment we confess our sins, listen to what happens. God takes away our sin. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Folks, when you and I confess our sins, God forgives us. He takes it away as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed your inequity from you. Wow. That is so amazing to me. He says, you're not going to die. Because you see, that was the wages of sin is what? It's death. You're not going to die. But then he goes on and says it. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord to show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. In other words, there's always a consequence to our sin. we got to get out of this mindset. I, I get tired of hearing Christians say, you know, God's a forgiving God. It's no big deal. I just ask him to forgive me. Folks, it is a big deal. Every sin has a consequence. You say, what happens if nobody finds out? It does something to you. It diminishes you. It devalues you. The enemy can haunt you. He can torment you. He can accuse you. Yeah, there's all these things that go on in our lives. But let's take a look after being forgiven. I want to take a look at these four elements that are going to give us an understanding of our experiencing God's comfort after sin, after we've mourned over our sin. You know, the first is our willingness to confess our sin, our behavior as a sin. And David starts out, and it, it, it says in Psalm 51, you know, there, it tells you the occasion that David wrote the psalm. It says, after, it says, um, when Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's when he wrote the psalm, okay? Is that powerful? He says here in Psalm 51, verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my inequity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Isn't that amazing? It can really haunt us. But then he says this. This is a powerful line. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, let's just stop there for a minute. Wait a minute, David. I mean, you had a guy killed. Didn't you sin against Uriah? Of course he had. Didn't you sin against Bathsheba? Of course you did. Right? Didn't you sin against this unborn child? Yes, you did, David. So he sinned against people. But here's what I want you to understand about sin. All sin is ultimately against God. And really, that's the great transgression. We need to understand it. You know, I, I think when we sin, a lot of times we feel bad because of how it makes us feel. Or we may feel bad about what it's done to someone we love. Okay? We all get that. But it's really hard for us to wrap our mind around the fact that when we sin, it's primarily against God. See, we, we have a hard time with that one. And yet, I want you to know that God is the most loving, caring. He's the person that never leaves you nor forsakes you. He's with you. He's showing you his love and his grace. And every time we sin, we're sinning against him. We need to get that in our mind. That's why David says this. He says, and so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Can I just stop? And I've said this before, but I'm going to repeat it because I think it's such an important point. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, remember this? And God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, sometimes we think what happens when we eat of that tree is that we understand what evil is. But I think it's more significant than that. And I agree with some of the writers, some of the theologians and thinkers. They said this, what's really going on there is they're determining that they are the ones that are going to define what's right and wrong. And you see, that's what's happening in our culture today. We are determining. When we, when we decide that we're not going to allow God to be the determiner of what is right and wrong, we're going to determine what's right and wrong. That's when we're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And every time we do that, folks, there's a consequence because your, your and my idea of what's right and what's wrong is maybe different than what God's is. And here's the problem. When you and I are wrong, we suffer. Because it's God who defines what is good. It's God who defines what is evil. And we're living in a culture today that is so confused that they're actually saying today that right is wrong and wrong is right. That's what's happening in this culture today. And so people are absolutely confused today about what's right and what's wrong anymore. You know, isn't that tragic? We have to come back to the Word of God. We have to come back to God and say, this is the standard that God created for humanity. This is the boundaries that He created for our well-being. It's not about being free to sin. It's a freedom from sin because sin is a bondage. And it creates heartache and brokenness in people's lives. And that's all we're seeing. And don't tell me we're being loving by telling people they're okay to continue in their sin because that's not loving. That's allowing them to die. And if we really love people, we would begin to weep over their sin instead of just sit there indifferent towards it. David goes on to say, Surely I was sinful at birth and sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I want you to notice what we do not find in David's confession. No excuses and no blaming. Is that powerful? That's all we hear today. Here's the reason why I did this. The reason why I did this was because I had this problem. David could have said, you know, the reason why I committed adultery is I never felt really loved in my life. My dad wasn't there for me. You can tell in the story his dad didn't think highly of him. He could have come up with all kinds of reasons why he did this bad thing, but David didn't do that. <laughs> Folks, we got to stop doing this. It's somebody else's fault. This, this is the reason why it's happened. Can I point out to you, the reason why we sin is because we're weak. The reason why we sin is because we've succumbed to temptation. You know, the reason why we, we, we did something we shouldn't have done is because maybe the circumstances weren't in our favor, right? And we felt compelled to tell a lie. Can I point out to you that when we sin, it's because there's something wrong with us in our heart. You know, I was reminded of the prophet Jeremiah. He was warning them. He said, you know, you've turned your back on God. God's going to send you into exile. And he's going to bring, you know, a siege around the city of Jerusalem. And you're going to be in famine. And then he says something disturbing. He said the most sensitive of, of a woman, the most sensitive woman in the city is going to eat her own child. You go, that's disgusting, pastor. What does it tell me? It tells me under the right context, you and I are capable of all kinds of evil. 
So let's stop playing this game as if, you know, we're super saints and would never happen to us. We just have never had the context where we've had to, you know, make those kind of decisions. Why am I saying all of that? Because David is telling us something very profound here. Number, you know, what I, oh, the second thing I notice is David sees the gravity of his sin and understands that his sin is primarily against God and God's love. I've already kind of focused in on that. And the third thing I see is David's agreement with God's assessment. David agrees. He doesn't try to justify himself. He doesn't argue or wrestle with the Scripture to suit his fancy. I get tired of people trying to manipulate Scripture to justify their sin. Have you ever heard those? You know, how do we respond to God's Word? We'll, we'll determine if it brings healing and restoration or death and judgment into our lives. When we dismiss God's Word as strictly, well, that's for that time, or that was that culture, or somebody's interpretation, many times we diminish the power of God's Word. We've got to be careful about that. You know, I think there are some cultural things. I think we need to understand all that stuff. But at the end of the day, we shouldn't hide behind those things to justify our sin. That's wrong. That's what I'm telling us. You know, let God's Word speak, strike, convict, and finally bring out confession, which brings us near to God. The fourth thing I notice is that David is overwhelmed by his sin, his guilt, and his shame. He sees himself as he truly is. He realizes that he's got a heart condition that's wrong. Now, I want to say something here. This text does not support original sin, okay? There are texts that talk about that, but this is not the one that does it. This is a poetic uh, portion, and David speaks in poetry. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He's not saying I was conceived in sin. He's not saying he's an illegitimate child. He was the eighth child. My goodness, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is... This is how bad sin is. It cuts so deep it goes all the way back. You know, he's making uh, what we call hyperbole. It's an exaggerated form of speech. He's doing a parallelism. You know when you're studying poetry, they do parallelism? If A is this, then B is that kind of a thing. That's what he's doing here. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time against that. I was going to quote from Dr. Longman here talking about this, but I'll move past that point. I like what Marvin Tate says, the passage is more commonly understood today as a confession of the essential human condition of the speaker. One is a sinner simply as a result of one's natural human descent. In other words, we're all sinners. Let's not pretend. We're all sinners in this room, and we're all capable of sin. The moment you accept that about yourself, then you can walk in humility. You can say, but for the grace of God, I could do that too, right? We're not here to throw rocks at people. We're going, I understand this behavior. You know, you know the good thing about being, I grew up in a dysfunctional family. So to me, that's just a nice word of saying, I grew up in a sin, sinner's home, okay? And I, I just realized that people behave and do bad things, even though they don't want to do it or mean to do it, that many times because of their fallen nature, they do it, right? It wasn't that my parents were trying to mess up my head, but sometimes because they were focused on their own selves, there was sin involved right? And so I have a more realistic approach to people. I go, oh, we're all human beings. We're all capable of sin. So when comes somebody shares with me, I don't go, oh, I can't believe you did this. You know, I just kind of go, oh, okay. You know, where are we going to go from here? You know, that's my, my take. I, I'm not shocked by it. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It doesn't throw me for a loop. I'm just going, no, this is the way we are as human beings. We're sinners, Okay, we got to understand that. That's our condition. That's what he's telling us here. He says, the emphasis is on the sin of the speaker who admits that sin has been no freak event. In other words, oh, this is not the way I normally behave. Well, that's true. It may not be the way you normally behave, but in this moment you did behave like that. And you know, sometimes when that happens to us, it really shakes us up. You know, I had an experience a few years ago, and I, I went, I can't believe I did that. And I, I felt so shame. I felt such shame in myself. I felt so low. I felt so condemned. And you know, I started to realize part of the problem was why I knew God was forgiving me. I knew I asked Him to forgive me. I knew the person forgave me. I asked them to forgive me, but I couldn't forgive myself. And you know what I said to myself? You know what the real problem is here? You got pride. That's what the issue is here. You, you don't believe that you're capable of this, and that's why you're so shaken by this. And it made me realize we never get beyond that point where you and I can sin. 
And that is a profound place to be. See, that's why we're poor in spirit. That's why we have to live in daily dependency upon Almighty God. Given the right context, I could do stupid things. I've even prayed this prayer. You guys don't know, this is a dangerous prayer, but I've said, Lord, if I'm about to do anything so stupid as to shame the church or my family, kill me on the spot. I don't even want to go through that experience. Don't let me do it. You go, really? That's radical praying, Pastor. I'm going, yes, because I see how many times people and leadership have done stupid things and done such destructive damage in people's lives. And I'm not blaming them because I recognize they're sinners. I just don't want to do that. Amen? You know, I get up and I say, Lord, I do fear you. And I don't want to do something dumb like that. Let me move to the second element here, is the desire for cleansing from sin and restoration. How many know life apart from God is mere existence? That's all it is. David desires change from within the depths of his being. He's not interested in a superficial external change, but a transformation at the very core of his being. He says here, yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with high sup and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Here we see that desire to be in a right relationship with God. This is not a superficial faith. This is not merely external religious activity. You know, a lot of Christians, they're just going through the motions. No, this is actually having truth at the innermost part. You know, the Hebrew word is, uh, is the word emet, E-M-E-T. And it actually means, it can be translated truth, it can be translated faithfulness, it can be translated a number of different words, and different translations do that. It emphasizes reliability and trustworthiness rather than absolute accuracy. So God's not expecting perfection. What he's expecting from us is that we're integrated and that we're trustworthy. God is looking for faithfulness from us. He's looking that we're being, we're, we're actually being authentic. We're being true to who we really are. We're not playing a game. We're actually identifying this is who I am. And when I'm struggling with something, I'm willing to acknowledge it and say, God, I need help in this area. God is seeking a person whose external profession is consistent with the inward reality of his or her being that is often kept hidden away in the inward parts. Gerald Wilson says, this kind of vulnerability allows God to transform one's inner self by teaching wisdom in the inmost place. The psalmist affirms that appropriate revelation of the inner self requires divine wisdom. So what is he basically saying? He's basically saying, God, we need help. We can't change on our own. That's why coming to God... And only by coming to God can sin actually be addressed in our lives. Do you know how devastating sin is? It's destructive. Here's the good news. How many know that God is a creator? How many know God created the world? How many are just rejoicing in that? But here's the good news. When you and I confess our sins, you know what happens? God's creative power comes inside of us. If any man or woman be in Christ, they become a what? A new creation. The God who, you know, took the chaos in the Genesis chapter 1 can actually take the chaos of our sin and create order and beauty out of our lives. God can take the worst that we have done and transform it and make order and beauty out of it. Who can do that? You and I can't. God can't. He wants to do that. Listen, the murderer, David, the adulterer, David, knows that only God can cleanse from sin. But not just that he forgives. Listen, I love what John tells us. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins. And what? And purify us. You know, it's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing to have what's wrong with us be transformed in us. That's the hope that we have as Christians. That God can bring purity in your life. That God can begin to transform you from the inside out. That God can change, you know, the propensity that you have towards the sin. And God can hold it in check. And God can begin to transform you. That is so hope-filled for me. I just go, God, thank you, thank you, thank you that you can change a murderer like Paul. You can change a murderer like Moses. 
Do you guys realize that some of the people God used were terrible people? That God transformed. And that's a good news for us. That God can take any one of us and transform our lives. Wow. Will we let him do it? That's the question. It says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. In other words, he's saying, don't do it. And I want to tell you, you have a power inside of you that's able to say no to sin. Have you ever thought about it? The God who created the universe is living in you and me if you're a child of God. The same power is inside of you. You know, when people say, well, I can't resist sin, I go, what are you talking about? You've got God living inside of you. You've got the greatest power on earth. You have the power to say no. Now, I can understand it if I'm not a Christian. I don't have that power. But as a child of God, he puts that power in our lives. But even when we do sin, because sometimes we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Wow. Notice the joy that's realized, the gladness that follows confession and restoration of sin. So we see the third change of, is the heart that brings about renewal or revival. Think about what's happening here. He says in ver- verse 10, Create in me a pure heart. I love that. I've sinned. I've defiled myself. My, I'm, I'm junk. I'm muck. I, you know, no wonder we feel so yucky and depreciated because we violate ourselves. And then we confess to God, and then we say, Lord, purify my heart. Oh, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Help me not to be able to be baited again, God. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You know, sin is so destructive in our lives that it takes that creative work of God to restore us. Don't you love that? God creates this new creation. I already talked about that. What was David's cry? Lord, don't leave me. Don't withdraw your presence from me. Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'm going to come in. You know, that's a very intimate portrait. I don't know if you guys realize how intimate that really is. Want me to paint it for you? I have this other one, Song of Solomon, chapter 5. You know, the Song of Solomon is love poetry. But here, you know, the church canonized this book because I believe they understood that this wasn't just a, a love poem between a husband and a wife, though I think it is. But I think it's a beautiful picture of our relationship with Almighty God. And listen to what happens. The bridegroom comes to us, and he wants to be intimate with us. You know what we do? I got a headache. <laughs> I don't have time for you, Jesus. I'm busy doing my own thing. And then she awakens and realizes, what am I doing? I've sent my lover away from me. And she awakens to it, and she says in Psalm, Song of Songs 5, 6, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone, and my heart sank at his departure. That's what David was saying. Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore your Holy Spirit to me. Lord, I long for your presence. Isn't it amazing? God's presence. Isn't it sweet? The sweet presence of God. You know, that's what I want. I want his presence. You know, let me move to the final element. There's a freedom. When we confess our sins, when we mourn over our sins, there's a comfort that comes that brings such freedom. It creates a freedom in worship. You know, let me just say what David said. You know, worshipers are forged out of forgiveness because there's not one of us in this room that hasn't sinned. Every one of us. Listen, nobody in this room is beyond God's reach. There's, you know, Isaiah says, come, let's reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. God says, I can take care of that. I can take care of that. There's no, no sin too great. I can take care of it. I want you to hear what happens. David says he's released from this bondage and this guilt and this shame. Isn't that wonderful? You know, sometimes we just have to say, okay, God, you know, the righteous person, listen to me, in Proverbs it says, he falls seven times when he gets back up. The wicked fall into wickedness. Do you know the sign of a righteous person is they stop condemning themselves. They get back up and say, God, I believe you've forgiven me. 
I'm going to forgive myself and I'm going to move on. That's the sign of a righteous person. Let's do that. Let's get up. Get up, I say. Get up, I say. Walk with the Lord. Listen to what it says. I will teach transgressions your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice. In other words, you're not looking for external ritualistic things, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then there will be righteous sacrifices. See, so God is not opposed to the external. He's opposed to the external when the heart's not in it. What God is looking for is that our hearts are in what we're doing externally. That's what he's looking for. David was not negating the ritualistic Old Testament offering. He was challenging us to not have a lack of heart, but to experience true brokenheartedness and mourning over our sin. How many know an outward profession of faith alone does not save? There needs to be a mourning for sin. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, conviction must of necessity precede or go before conversion. A real sense of sin must come before there can be a true joy of salvation. Do you know what's really needed in the church today? You know what's needed in our culture today? It's not just the right political party or the right lead, even though I've advocated for standing up for things. What we really need is the Holy Spirit to bring Holy Ghost conviction of sin back into the life of the people in the church so that we would get right with Almighty God and we would become the kind of people that God wants us to be in this generation. That's what's needed in the world today. We need that more desperately than ever before. And look what happens when you and I experience this. Look at the kind of worship that flows from a forgiven heart. I love that story. The Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner. And he turns to this woman. Pharisee's gone. can't believe this woman's messing with Jesus. She's a, she's a lowlife. And he turns to the woman and he says to Simon, you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Folks, that's worship. You did not give me a kiss, but from the moment this woman entered, I have, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Now, I don't believe what Jesus is saying is go out and sin a lot so you can love a lot. That's not what he's teaching us here. You know what he's saying to us? What he's saying to us is simply this. When you and I finally understand how sinful we really are and realize how much God loves us in spite of how broken we really are, we will begin to love God at a level we've never known before. We need a revelation of this, folks. We need to say, God, I'm playing a little game where I pretend I'm a good person. I pretend I'm better than I am. Why don't we just be honest with God? God, you see every fault. You know every weak moment. You know every temptation. You know all about me. There's no place I can run from you. You know my soul and my condition, and I come to you just as I am. But God, don't leave me where I'm at. I just pray that your spirit would come and, and bring cleansing and work in my soul, that purification, that I could be just released to serve you in such a powerful way. But, you know, David didn't stop at personal worship. His interest, you know, it's very fascinating. When I read this last part, I went, what in the world is he doing? He goes, may it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. How in the world does this fit in with this mourning over sin? You know how it fits in? I'm going to tell you something. I know when we've deeply mourned over our personal sin, we end up moving past ourselves and we start to become concerned about others. You know, the sign of maturity is when we focus off ourselves and we focus on others. I want you to look at the Bible again. I want you to see Moses. The nation had sinned against God. God says, Moses, I'm tired of these guys. All they do is sin. What does Moses do? He's weeping before God. He says, God, if you're going to destroy them, take me first. He's weeping for his people. You know, I look at Ezra. Ezra found out. I mean, they're in, they've just come back from exile, and they're still sinning. And Ezra finds out what they've done, and he's just pulling his hair out of his head. He's just going, oh, God. He's mourning over the sin of his people. Nehemiah mourned over the sin of the nation. Daniel was mourning over the sin of the people. 
But then I look at my Savior, Jesus. And he looks over the city of Jerusalem. And he sees, you know, he's God. He's come to his own people. And his own did not even receive him. They're about ready to crucify him. Can you imagine? He's come to save them and they're about to kill him. It's just crazy, isn't it? You know, and Jesus looks over the city. You think he'd be angry and upset with these people. You know what he does? Starts weeping over the city. Folks, it's so easy for us to become Pharisees. Isn't that true? I see the sin of my neighbor over there, and I go, what's wrong with that turkey, you know? He's not like I am. I'm way better than that. That's kind of how we play the game. I'm a Christian. They're not, right? Would to God that we would say, but for the grace of God. I'd start weeping because that person, that's where I was. That's where I was. But for the grace of God. But for the grace of God. And when we start weeping over our city and our province and our nation, God will hear our prayer. The Bible says, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. That's what we need. That's what we need. Let's stand this tonight. You know, we it was so beautiful this morning. <clears throat> I had no idea. You know, when you're praying, I was up at f- quarter to five, and I was praying for us, and then I came to church, and, you know, we have this time with men. I pray at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I've done this for over 25 years. I have men praying with me. I don't have, I don't have the, the courage to come up here and preach without the prayers of God's people. And these men were praying, and one man really hit the nail on the head, and he said... He was starting to cry out to God. He had joined us. He joined with the ladies. We were up here, and he's crying out, and he said, God, may this be the day. May this be the day when you're going to deliver people from the bondage of sin. May this be the day they can look back in a year from now and say, this was the day God set me free. This was the day. And maybe you're here today, and you've been in bondage, and you've been struggling, and you've been, you know, let's just get right with just do business with Almighty God. Today is the day. You know, some people just keep struggling with sin over and over. Just keep succumbing, keep succumbing. Let me say something to you. Today is the day. There's a power today. The power of God is so great. It is greater than your sin. Grace that is greater than our sin. But there's a power greater than your sin that can set you free tonight. With every head bowed tonight, God has been speaking to your heart tonight. God has spoken to you. And just with an uplifted hand, say, God, I want you to set me free. Just raise your hand right now. God, I want you to set me free. And I'm going to pray for you right now. God is going to do such a powerful work today and liberate you. Maybe there's bitterness, unforgiveness. It can be, you know, evil thoughts, jealousy, gossip. You know, we could talk about lust. We could just go on and on, talk about all the things people get involved in. People get in bondage over, you know, they get into drug addiction. They're trying to, you know, deal with the pain in their soul. And eventually they're addicted to this, this drug. Whatever it is, it could be condemnation. You've not been able to receive God's forgiveness. You just don't believe it. You haven't received it. Said, so, oh God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me tonight. And I just receive your grace. I just pray tonight, Father, that your spirit would move supernaturally in our hearts, O God, and establish your word within our hearts tonight. That we would experience the power of your freeing grace. That we would say today was the day we laid a a stake down and we experienced your liberty in our soul. And we can walk away from this bondage that we've been attached to, oh God. You've set us free. The power of the living Christ, the joy, because we've now mourned over us in the joy of experiencing your fellowship is so much greater. It's such a delight. I can say no to the lesser because I'm saying yes to the greater. And I thank you for that tonight, Father. I thank you for this night, this night of freedom and liberty. I receive your forgiveness tonight and I forgive myself and I'm moving forward. I'm getting up, Lord, from this ash heap of self-condemnation and I'm moving forward in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.